Welcome back to Wild Health Podcast and a Happy New Year to you. I'm Wendy John. For our first episode of 2023, I've put in a long distance call all the way to Denmark. Why Denmark? Well, they have a sophisticated digital health ecosystem and one that Australia could learn a lot from. Two guests are joining us to talk about the Danish healthcare model. Professor Jens Sunago, he's a GP, a clinical pharmacologist, and among other research affiliations, he leads the General Practice Research Unit at the University of Southern Denmark. He's joined by Professor Janis Thompson, also an active GP and clinical professor and leader of the Centre for General Practice at Aalborg University in Denmark. Thanks for joining us, Professor Jens Sunago and Professor Janis Thompson. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you give us an overview of the digital health ecosystem in Denmark? I think I'll give a brief overview. In Denmark, we have a rather advanced digital health ecosystem because every Windows have electronic patient files. We have access to all the patient's data from the GPs and the hospitals do have access to a lot of the patient's data regarding medicine, regarding treatment strategies, and we also have access to clinical guidelines. And what's mostly important is that we do communicate electronically in Denmark. We have a common standard. Is there a single patient identifier that links all of this data together? Yes, we have a single patient. It's not only patients, it's a common personal number which goes for economics, taxes, bank security. So we are able not only in the healthcare system to link people together, but also to link people together with a lot of other informations. So it's it's a very unique thing to have that common personal security number. When we talk about interoperability, it's a big challenge in Australia. We don't have legislation that requires software vendors to have interoperable systems. Is there, how does that become, how did that become the standard in Denmark? so that you can have this single patient identifier where this information is freely flowing. I think it it goes back to the 60s when we had that personal registration number that was unique. It was actually introduced for taxing purposes. And then it's just been a far rapid development. I think that we have had those electronic patient filing systems for more than 20 years. We have had these standards for more than 20 years. And the one identifier is used not just for healthcare, but for taxation, for licensing, for every public function that someone has? Every public function and for many private functions, you know, Saturday. when, when you, you want to rent something, you know, when you want to rent a movie, you had to use your, your personal registration number. So, so for everything, it, it's really your identifier. And we use that for our registers too. So, so that's why we have registers comprising, you know, almost everything we do in Denmark. How do you manage issues of privacy? One of the pushbacks that has occurred in Australia around having this kind of an approach is, well, the government will know everything about me. And also we've had a number of data breaches from hacking and insufficient systems by corporates in Australia and some government systems as well. What does Denmark have in place to protect privacy for, for individuals? I think that regarding research, we used anonymized files, so we don't see the files. And if there are any data breaks 
at the university, we will be actually be punished. You know, we will not have access to using those filing systems for a long time, and we may have fines. And we have a really, really good controlling system on that. Is that the same for government? If there's a government department where there has been a breach it's the same of data, for the government and the same for municipalities. It's the same for everybody who uses this system. And individuals are held legislatively accountable for breaches. Yes. Wow. And we have a data protection system at a government level, which ensures that everyone is up to standard, including private business who are going to use the personal identification numbers. So we have very little history of data breaches and our system are well-trusted and secured. So there's actually a large awareness of security around this security number in Denmark. There's a saying that says, if no one person is responsible, then no one's responsible. And I think that's one of the challenges that we have in Australia, that there's not a personal accountability, that no one is held to account when there is a data breach. It's you know put down to, oh, well, we've got to do more training around awareness. And I think it's a cultural challenge for us mm. legislatively. I think it's also about culture in Denmark. You know, we, we are a small country, we are a tribe, and, and the degree of trust is very, very high in Denmark in comparison with many other countries. So we trust in our government. The trust in your governments is, is much we, we higher. We trust in each other, yeah, yeah. And trust in each other in terms of like communities and neighbourhoods leaving yeah. doors unlocked and those sorts of things? Yes. So I wonder whether Australia culturally is going to be able to do something similar or what would be required? I think you have to do something similar in, in order to improve your healthcare system and your social welfare system. It's really one of the cornerstone systems in, in our healthcare system. It's data and it's being able to exchange data between different parts of, of the healthcare system and the social welfare system. So there's been a very different model for general practitioners in Denmark that is outcome-based rather than transactional basis, which we have in Australia. Can you explain a little bit how that works and how that is funded? Yes, every DP in Denmark has a contract which is negotiated from a central organization for the general practitioners with the government. And we have around 30% reimbursement on listed patient and 70% reimbursement on activities. And then we have a lot of different activities. Consultation is one reimbursement if you take samples, that would be another reimbursement. So we have a, a quite well-developed structure for reimbursement and it's negotiable each four years and also gives room for very fast implementation. Like Jens just said, we have a very mature digital health system and combined with our negotiations, it, it gives if something comes into our national contract, it will be very fast implemented. Is it possible to have that system without a mature digital health ecosystem? Yes, I think the structures for the system started well before that we have this very elaborate digital health model, but you need the personal security number to follow patients and to be, to be able to know which patients should have reimbursement for the GPs. 
So ultimately, you still need that single patient identifier in order to make that model work. And that single patient identifier needs to be able to be accessed by a variety of providers, not just primary care, but hospitals and allied health, etc. Exactly. It's the, the basis, the cornerstone, like Jens said, for communication and to be able to follow patients through the healthcare system. And on average, patients visit their GPs seven to eight times a year. And of course, for elderly patients, they are more often visited GP and the GP is actually coordinator of care and also gatekeeper. So you have to visit your GP when you want to get a referral to a hospital or to a specialist, apart from ear, nose and throat specialists. Do care teams work together for patients with chronic conditions? Yes, but still the, the GP is the gatekeeper of most healthcare, unless you have a, a specific disease which requires you to be continuous with the hospital ambulatory. Most of patients are being taken care of by the general practitioners and only referred to the hospitals when in, in need for specialist treatment. And might I ask, a, I guess, a, a personal question, but one that would be of great interest to general practitioners in Australia, is it a financially viable job being a general practitioner in Denmark? In Australia, if you are a non-GP specialist, things can be quite financially rewarding, but GPs, are, some of them are struggling to maintain clinics. Yeah, well, in Denmark, you get a high salary being a GP better than being a hospital specialist, far better. Wow. So it's rather attractive being a GP in Denmark. And that's a kind of way to ensuring that we have this model with a very good and attractive to be in the primary care health system. And if you want a very efficient healthcare system, you need very good doctors who would see it as very interesting and also financially rewarding to be in primary care where you take care of the gatekeeper role. Research we have conducted have shown that the quality of care delivered by general practitioners in, in Denmark is very high. Now, there are significant financial benefits and cost reductions in the Danish model. What are some other aspects that have led to a reduction in cost? I think documentation that we have been able to document that the DPs can deliver a high a degree of quality, the highly the specialization of the GPs, they, they are highly trained specialists. Uh, I think that the, the GPs trade union, they have also done rather well here. What is the approach to preventative health? How is that funded? It's a part of the national agreement, for instance, for vaccination and children health care and cancer prevention, cardiovascular prevention is also a, a, a part of the national agreement. So how do people get rewarded? for reducing statistics for those conditions in their general practice? Yeah, they don't. There's no economic incentive, but, but knowing the patient from cradle to grave is the best incentive you could have. How does the cradle to grave approach work when there's mobility of workforce or people moving to different locations, changing GPs? I think one of the things is come back to a very high level of digitalization in general practice. So if a patient shifts from one general practitioner, even if 
they shift from a totally different digital system, we are able to communicate between the systems. So when a patient goes to another city and a new GP, they will have the electronic patient journals referred electronically. So you actually almost don't notice that this is a new patient seen from what you can read in your electronic patient journal. Yeah, albeit we have different um, patient filing systems, we have a common communication standard. That makes it possible to exchange information between all these different systems. Do you use SNOMED, the clinical terminology standard? No, we use CD10 for the hospitals and ICPC for, for the GPs. But we also have codes for lab data and, and for everything. So, so these systems can ex- exchange information freely. ICPC for primary care, was it? Yeah. Yes, it's also a national developed. It's based on symptoms rather than end diagnosis like ICD-10. But again, one thing that's very important is that there's a linkage between the two. So if you put on ICPC-2 diagnosis and you send the patient to the hospital, you will automatically have a translation into the ICD-10 diagnosis when you receive it at the hospital. And that is a kind of translatable clinical terminology for different conditions and approaches. How does that work in the research space? Because researchers sometimes require different kinds of information. Yes, and the the interlink between the two kinds of diagnoses we can also make in research. So we'll be able to read and understand both kinds of diagnoses. That's very exciting. That's very exciting. So researchers in Denmark have access to population level data and all of it is basically clean data is what you're saying. Yes. Mm -hmm. I guess that that is a part of what would feed into your preventative healthcare, being able to have that kind of population level data and being able to keep a check on any hotspots for disease or hotspots for changes in condition that you can then feed back through to your healthcare, back through your outcome-based model. Yes, Yes, exactly. And we saw that very much. That that came very uh, much research out of Denmark during COVID-19 epidemics because we have these very good healthcare registers on being able to follow the patients very closely. So if we could talk a bit about medical devices, for example, home care, those devices provide real-time information back to hospitals or general back to the patient's medical records? How does that work? We have an interface, you know, we have a communication standard. So when we use devices like, you know, blood sugar or other devices, they feed directly into our electronic patient filing systems. And right now we are also testing PCR systems to be used in general practice and feed directly into our systems. So we are actually moving advanced diagnostics out to general practice as we are also moving ultrasonography to general practice But because we, we have shown that these diagnostic tools can be used in general practice and, and they use it to a high degree of quality and it gives value for the patients. The information from wearables and some of those at-home diagnostics or those at-home monitoring systems and devices. Is it real-time that the data gets uploaded to 
the medical record? We only have that in projects. We don't have that as a routine basis, but we're trying. We are now developing projects on feeding in these data in real time. What's the time lag generally? Daily updates. That's still pretty good. (laughs) That's still a long way ahead of what we've got in Australia. Do paramedics have, so ambulance officers, do they have access to the patient record as well? No, but they have the, they interlink with our patient journals. So what is happening in the ambulances is it's not like directly going to the general practitioners, but it's going to the emergency departments where the patients are coming in from the ambulances. So we have the same rather advanced digital health care system with possibilities looking into each other's data in the paramedics as well. So would a paramedic be able to see whether someone is on medication or whether they have an underlying condition while they're treating a patient in their home? The the medication, but they'll not be able to have very advanced looked into the uh, into the patient's history. They will be able to communicate with the hospitals and then they will receive that information. So they can call up in the moment, time, yes. get that information yeah. from the hospital. And yeah. for instance, ICDs will be sent electronically, so real time. So heart physician will be able to, to monitor the ECD while the paramedics is treating the patient. Just supplement with one thing. It's not only variables that we have data from, but we also have, even though it's quite low tech, I think it's very important to mention that patient reported outcome measurements are able to go directly into our electronic patient journals as well. So if you want a, a score for anxiety or depression, or you want home blood pressure measurements, we are able to send an email to the to the patient and they'll be able to report directly into the electronic patient journal for a lot of different patient reported outcome measurements. What interoperability standards are used within the software systems? Yes, I think that it's HL7 that we use for the common communication standard, but on top of that, we have something which is specialized for how we communicate such in Denmark but it's based on HL7. Which other countries have a similar model to Denmark in terms of having a single patient identifier, having that information being fully shareable? And Norway and Sweden. Yeah. There's a common saying in Australia that, you know, Scandinavians do things, they do everything so much better. And I think this is probably one example of that. I think we have a lot we can give out, especially concerning our healthcare systems, but certainly we also have a, having our problems as well. But due to this long tradition with having a personal registration number and a very high level of digitalization, I think we have a lot of experiences to give to other healthcare systems. And it sounds like the level of training and respect and credibility that is given to general practice as a specialization is something that has been able to uplift the digital health ecosystem and really bring it to its full potential. Yeah, well, well, actually, the DPs, they have been those in, in front of the digital health evolution in, in the Danish healthcare system. They've been pushing for it. Yeah, yeah, they were preceding the hospitals, actually, with electronic patient filing systems. What are some other important elements about the 
Danish model that you'd like to share with us? Well, I think about the Danish model, it's shown important that the GPs are independent contractors. And it's very important for their motivation also that they own their own clinics. But still, they should have a contract with the regions. This works very well. And then it's about the high level of education, both postgraduate in the specialization process, but also afterwards. They spend, I think it's 10 days, isn't it, Janus, per year on just keeping up to date activities. Yes, exactly. And these 10 days are actually paid by in the agreement. So there's money set aside for research, quality development, and education in the contract between the general practitioners and the health authorities. We have very skilled general practice researchers in Denmark, as you have in, in Australia, I know. But, but this research feeds directly into development of general practice. And that's, that's important. Really? This is, is very important. Could you give me an example of some projects under the quality development units? Yeah, right now I could mention one. We have a project concerning polypharmacy where we have people who are specially educated in pharmaceutical. They go out from the quality development unit and train the general practitioners and the nurses how to react to polypharmacy in their patients. And they have, they sit in with some of the consultations and helping the both the GPs and the nurses concerning patients with polypharmacy. And then the research units are doing the evaluation in randomized controlled trials. Wow. And my, my final question to each of you is, what is it that excites you about general practice? Well, I think there's a lot of very exciting thing about general practice and we are both GPs by background and actually we have seen patients. So I think seeing, being able to, to see the patient from cradle to grave is a, a very high incentive for doing the very best for the patients. And that's our way into general practice. Then there's all the possibilities of having flexibility concerning education, being part of research and policy development which also are very rewarding. And I think what is totally essential is that there is a very good collaboration with the high specialized department in the hospital and in the municipalities. Excellent. Yeah, I think it's spot on what Diana said. It's, it's probably the best job in the world. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Professor Jan Sunago and Professor Janis Thompson. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a happy new year, both of you. Same to you. Same to you. You've been listening to the Wild Health Podcast. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au.